Many times we feel paralyzed by fear and body hatred. In order to feel better about ourselves and live the life we really want to manifest, we have to own up to our difficult feelings and self-sabotaging thoughts and behaviors. We all enter this world naked, and now it's time to feel good naked. No matter what your body size or your life circumstances, this is Feel Good Naked Radio, and your host is Lar Redmond. On this program, Lar will help you become more embodied, self-empowered, and mindful to take charge of whom you really are and to live the life you deserve to live. Now, here's your host, Laura Redmond. Hello and welcome to another episode of Feel Good Naked Radio. I'm your embodied guide, Laura Redmond, and today my guest is the chief influencer for Silver Disobedience, which is a rebellion against ageism, and it's digitally run through Instagram and Facebook. This is how I found Diane Grizel, and she's joining us today, and I'm really pumped up about this because I followed her on Instagram for a while before I sought her out. Um, And I really felt an authenticity with her message that is rare in this world of wellness. And she's really touching the nerve of a very important demographic that has not been reached well, I don't think ever. So I'm excited to have Diane with me today. And with that, I want to welcome you to the show, Diane. Laura, I am honored. Thank you. I saw your sponsored ad on Instagram, and I thought, who is this exquisite woman? And then the message that you put out with your uh, feed is just super positive and embodied and important, and I'm glad to tap into a few of your topics, but also just to say that for those listening right this second, I want you to know that before we got live on the air, Diane had written an email that she had been rear-ended in a car on her way back from her vacation. And I thought of that as an opportunity to, to ask you when something like that, because your story is so intense, you know, there's been plane crashes and other things that you've survived. But when you go through something like a car crash and... I'm so sorry about that, but I want to know what you do in that second with your tools that you use and you help others learn. Well, you know, I, it, it's always a shock when you're coming back from a nice, relaxing few days out of the office in a real comfortable situation, and here you are cruising along through a tunnel at 30 miles an hour like everyone else, but you get rear-ended by someone who's going 40 and texting. So the lesson of the day is don't text and drive, but the bigger thing is, you know what? It doesn't make any difference that you had a great vacation. Life happens. It just keeps unfolding day after day, day in, day out, if we're lucky. So we all have to take the good with the bad because it's all going to just keep happening. (laughs) Vacation or not, it's happening. And everybody's safe and fine and nobody was hurt. That's always the first thing. And, and that's true. And just fine. So did this person that was texting and driving um, actually say they were texting and driving, uh, admitted this? <laughs> it was a cab driver. His very upset passenger pointed it out. <laughs> hmm. So the world is chaotic. You know, one of the things I was so drawn to on your website is this 
commitment that you and I share with meditation. And so what I wondered is in this moment today, before we got on the air together, did you use meditative skills in the moment that this was happening unexpectedly? You know, that's a good question. I did say before we got out of the car, let's all just breathe. (laughs) We're all fine. Let's all just breathe. Because in that moment, your reaction is to get out and lambast the other person to say, what the heck were you thinking about? And But the answer is they weren't thinking. If they were thinking, they wouldn't have hit us. So there is no answer to those kind of redundant questions. So it does take, it makes a lot of sense to take the beat, take the breath, breathe, and just move on. My meditation teacher once told me that he you know, he's devout and has been in the practice since he was a young boy and he's now probably 50s. But he said, every day I meditate and I never know when I'm going to need it. And he was on a ski boat where a jet ski, so he's on a normal boat where his family is skiing off the back of the boat. And while they're setting up one of the skiers for this little outing, a jet ski comes up onto his boat like this person crashed up onto the boat that they were all on in their jet ski. And my meditation teacher said that it was such an interesting second because in that second he could feel the equanimity that he had spent these decades um, in his practice gaining and developing without knowing when he needed. And he said no one was hurt. He quickly assessed that. And that his calm demeanor shocked him. (laughs) And that that was why he realized he had been practicing since he was a young man. Because it just came in such an important moment for his skill set to kick in. And I think about that because I notice my reaction time is so different now with things that would normally or would have in the past before the practice of meditation would have really made me reactive. Now they really don't, or they don't as much. They still do. I learn from that opportunity, but less so. Well, I I do think one of the reasons I blog is each essay I write is my meditation for that day, and it's something I'm thinking about that I'm working on, and I do believe in a collective consciousness that we're all to some degree or another working on the same thing. And so I think I'd be a bit disingenuous to say that I think my years, and it's many years of meditation, sometimes I can find they go right out the window when it might be one of my children. Yeah. (laughs) One of my teenagers does something, and I think, oops, there goes all that meditation. The good part is I get bought. I think I come back quicker. <laughs> yeah, when I do there you go. It. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I mean, that recovery time is just as invaluable as the equanimity in the moment of the experience that no one knows or expects. I, I couldn't mm-hmm. believe that you had been in a plane crash and the photograph on your website I am in awe of your ability to have survived that so beautifully. Well, the irony is I've actually been in three. And the, the first one 
was obviously very unexpected, as was the second and third. But the second was a year later when I was going up to celebrate the anniversary of the first plane crash and walking away from it. And then 10 years later, after I didn't fly at all, I had a third. And the only thing I can say about plane crashes is I remember the day of the first one with such crisp vividness in twofold ways. One was that, okay, there's good possibility I'm going to die here. And it was a very calm, calm thing. And all I wanted to do was really focus on the fact that I wanted my parents to know I was 20 years old, that I was sorry for anything I had ever done. That was disrespectful, not right, whatever. Whatever it could have been, I felt pretty much at peace, but I I found myself really thinking, Mom and Dad know that I think you did a great job, which was a very funny first reaction I had. And the second, I remember going to work the next day and thinking someone was really upset about something. I was selling health club memberships at the time. And somebody was very upset. And I remember just looking at them thinking, no problem. We can handle this. This is minor. Yeah. Yeah. It was an instant attitude adjustment. And I hmm. think I've had that pretty much ever since. What is the symbolism in your story with plane crashes? Have you ever studied that at a deep level? Well, you know, a few years ago, a bunch of people I worked with really were fascinated by it, and they were trying to submit me into the Guinness Book of World Records, and we found out there are people that have crashed hundreds of times, particularly those in the service and things like that. So it was no no record in any way, but what I do think is some of us need to get knocked on the head a little harder to remind ourselves to slow down, pay attention, and I probably lead that pack. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. You know, I've, I had a couple of years ago, I had two concussions in a row in a six-month period. And mm-hmm. I remember the doctor saying to me, after they wanted to be assured no one was hitting me, and I said, no, 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 I'm just doing this damage myself. And they said, well, you know, then you really need to listen to the fact you need to slow down. You're getting a big message. Slow down. Chill. Yeah. Have you been able to do that differently now that the message has been sort of reinstated by you? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I I do think I'm much better at it. Uh, It is why I write. And I find each day when I do blog, and then I enjoy so much reading what people write back on silver disobedience, it fascinates me. And I feel like I'm in a daily therapy session with people where we're in this group, collective consciousness, and everyone's sharing the same kind of thoughts to one degree or another. I want to read this to the listeners about silver disobedience. Um, This is this incredible digital idea that Diane launched. And it's a movement that's opened up an important dialogue that you're talking about right now with a powerful, powerful group of consumers. And these are men and women that are 48 to 100 years old 
who feel irrelevant, misunderstood, misrepresented by all these marketers, because a lot of these marketers really miss it. Um, And this collective of people are those that could be anywhere from the ones carrying the diapers for the grandkids, the grandkids, uh, the great grandkids, their own children from third or fourth marriages. It's a circle of life audience that we relate to all of us. Many of us in that audience are 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. It's the audience that you're reaching that has not been reached. And I also just want to mention for everyone listening that Diane is 57 and she's not only the successful business owner and a strategist for more than 30 years, but there is this big new career that is as a silver haired icon model with Wilhelmina models in New York. Um, and that is just so cool because when I first saw you on this sponsored Instagram ad, I thought you were a model. I didn't realize that you were carrying such an important message as well. Well, thank you very much. It's funny. A lot of the messaging and the polling I've done about the disconnect between people started when I would go on certain auditions and or be cast and find that I was always cast as the grandmother, the young grandmother, I guess to some degree, because nobody really wants to look at an old grandmother yet. So it's this odd disconnect within the advertising and media world where, wait a second, what's wrong with the 65-year-old or 70-year-old face? Do they all have to be close to 100 or in their 30s? So... Here I was in my, as you said, 57, being cast as a 65-year-old because they wanted the young, you know, the young chic 65-year-old. Now, I have no complaints about any of this, but it's interesting, uh, it's an interesting phenomenon and that maybe because I'm walking in with silver hair, it's always assumed that either I don't have children or never had them or they've long gone off and are off in the world when the fact is I have two teenagers. You know, we're still raising teenagers. So it really is a breath-of-life audience that there are gaps in and misunderstandings because of second marriages or third or fourth, whatever they might be, because of in vitro fertilization, because of adoption, because of people choosing to not have children at all. So it's a consumer group in every vertical possible. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so I love the idea of the name Silver Disobedience. That's brilliant. How did you come up with that? I mean, the hair, obviously, because it's a beautiful signature (laughs) aspect of your visuals and your brand. But the disobedience is the part I want to know about. Well, we're actually a law-abiding group of citizens, but I was trying to do a play on words. I've always loved double entendres and admiring the civil disobedience movement, which was peaceful, and I do believe it pays to get across any message peacefully and with love and compassion and to create an understanding with people in a different way. So I wanted to play on words. I wanted it to be fun. I wanted it to be something that people could relate to, whether they had silver hair, colored hair, or had lost their hair altogether, whether from illness or just plain. 
I'm wondering when you were thinking about this business idea, if you were feeling like you couldn't find what you were looking for in the idea of information or motivation or options that would be offered to someone as energized as you are. You know, it's interesting. When you look at, let's take cosmetics. You could have a gorgeous young actress modeling and and trying to sell a, a foundation, a mascara for a major brand name who's in her 20s. Now, most people in their 20s are not buying $125 or $50 mascaras. Maybe they buy it once in a while, but it tends to be an older audience that buys those products. It's just like we're not asking Justin Bieber to advertise Depends diapers. (laughs) So there are disconnects that are ignoring a segment. And I think at every stage, we're, we're in such an interesting time in life of inclusiveness, of everybody, that what everybody looks like, how everyone presents themselves, regardless of color, race, creed, it's the world is moving towards let's embrace it all. Let's view people. But if we're going to present people, then we need people of all different looks, so people get used to it more. What's it like? You just have to catch up with the looks. And and so when you're in the modeling world and you see the way marketing is really handled from the inside out, as you refer to the age that you are versus the age that's being marketed, where do you feel there could be an intersection of this message that you bring forth that is actually counterintuitive to the modeling business? You know, it's interesting. I don't know enough about the modeling industry having, really, I've only been with Wilhelmina about a year now, and I'm very grateful for that opportunity. And I've really found, um, fortunately for me, I think the advertisers that have included me in their campaigns, and they've been major national brands, are very attuned um, and becoming more so attuned for uh, the older audiences. They're viewing them in different categories and starting to look more lifestyle-wise. So I think there is a message coming across, but, you know, they're all different ages. You know, I'm, I'm in my 50s. Well, what about the, the women and men that are in their 60s? Um, the ones that are in their 70s, um, should we have a 57-year-old model modeling as if she's the 67-year-old or 70-year-old? You know, it's, it's an interesting question to ask. And would you say that in your 50s, if we were to divide your decades, your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, your 50s, now being on the latter side of your 50s, what would you say in your own experience has been the takeaway message that has been the most empowering for you in your 50s? Well, you know, I would not want to, tr- I would not want to go backwards in time. Like most people, when you think of youth, uh, I think you 
I, I zoom more in on my insecurities that I say, thank goodness, seem to be resolving in my 50s. <laughs> and yeah. I think they started to resolve sometime in my late 30s. But by my 50s, it's a, it's a different tone. It's a different feeling. When I can see someone upset, I'm a lot less likely to say, oh, my gosh, they're upset with me. What did I do wrong? I think about that. I wonder. You know, I ask myself the question and try to be as honest as possible. Was there something I did that maybe upset that person? Or is it just possible they're having a bad moment? May not even be a bad day. Maybe they just had a bad split-second moment. So I think the benefit of a little less drama is a huge benefit of age, less drama, less sensitivity in the adverse sense of the word of sensitivity. I think there's a lot more sensitivity towards other people in understanding that I would never want to give up and go backwards with. When I see the younger girls on modeling shoots and I think, ooh, rough business. Meanwhile, I see when I can walk in and I see these older women that are models and we're giving each other the high fives. It's like, this is just cool we're here. How much fun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. Mean, it's, a, it's a really fun thing. I don't care who gets the job. You know, I'm yeah. just glad there's a bunch of us old ladies walking in there. <laughs> totally. Well, and I love what you said about community on your website, which is what this is reminding me of, is that you find your people, I think, in your 50s that maybe aren't the people you thought you'd find in that timeline, or maybe you didn't even know until that timeline, but it's very exciting, liberating, and relevant, back to the feeling that many have of being irrelevant. I think it's the opposite but you have to be embodied spiritually and physically and emotionally and mentally to experience that joy and opportunity. That is really an excellent point, Laura. To me, I, I, took a ser- I did a series of polls recently, and we will announce some of the results, but I'll give you a sneak peek. And one was asking people, was age a number or an attitude? And the result was so phenomenal to see how people resoundingly responded. You could only be old if you got an old attitude. Hmm. But if you wanted to feel young, embrace fun things, feel alive, feeling alive was what it came down to. And that is not to say that we don't have illnesses. We might not have different financial situations we're addressing with age. We might have children coming home or, I I mean, the list goes on and on, personal health difficulties that can arise. But it doesn't change the fact that it's all within, in that space between your ears determines your age more than a number. And I'm going to read this because I love this quote that you wrote about the fact that everyone is born unique. Daily, we are faced with opportunities to become even more remarkable beings due to the accumulation of experiences, pleasant or not, and our responses to them. 
I believe that every day is an essential class that offers education and insight into who we are, as well as whom we can be if we're lucky enough to wake up. That, that really does sum up exactly how I feel. In that, I do believe life is a gift. I know a lot of people that I love are not here. September 11th was a huge other wake-up call for me, being in New York, not being allowed to get into my apartment, and a variety of events that day that everyone has a story about. And I, we've, I've always supported military, um, veterans groups, and we're so lucky to be able to wake up every day. If we're up, opportunity is there. And doors open if we look for them. People are there to give us a hand. Sometimes we have to ask for the help. But if we do, there's somebody who's there who will help us. Somebody who's been there. Somebody who understands. Somebody who will just listen even if they don't understand. So to find that, to go seek that. To, to go figure out where that could be if you're someone listening who feels this vacancy in their life when you say that. Exactly. And to me, I, I'm, I'm always focused on how, how, do we, how do we become better? How do we grow? How do we grow into happiness by waking, waking into our dreams and realizing that if whatever we want, we're going to have to work on that, we need to make peace with wherever we are and look at where we want to go. We're, but we're always confined in the present moment. So we need to dig within in that moment and accept that all we really have is what's happening right now. What are we going to do with it? So we can retire into a tranquil mind while we're working on it. Yeah. I've often heard this phrase that really speaks to me, which is cool mind, warm heart. Yes, that's cool a great mind, expression. Warm heart. Yeah, I, it just, for me, it calms my nervous system down, even just to say it and certainly to think it and breathe it. But it's a great thing to just find. It's almost like mudra hand when in, in uh, meditation circles. Sometimes we would put the index finger to the thumb, which is mudra hand, and it's, to tap into the wisdom of the soul of yourself. And I find that cool mind and warm heart goes beautifully with that idea of mudra hand. It's a way to just look for a little calm in the storm when it's least expected. Are you willing to tell us what happened for you on 9-11? Um, we were, we, my home and office at the time was less than, uh, two blocks from the World Trade Centers. And the irony is, if you want to talk, I mean, real ironies in life, my oldest sister's youngest daughter and an exchange student from Italy were in visiting, and they had come up the night before, and they were both uh, 18, and the drinking age had become 21, but they had snuck wine coolers on the train from Virginia to New York. So when they arrived, they were a little tipsy, but we had agreed that night, the next morning, we were going to go to the 
observation deck at the World Trade Center to show this Italian exchange student the World Trade Center in the city from that perch. Oh, dear God. And, yeah, and they woke. I've never been so happy somebody was wasted in my life because Mm -hmm. they both woke up a little late that morning when Mm -hmm. the first plane hit. And I didn't bother waking them up. And when the first plane hit, they were like, what was that sound? And I said, I don't know. I have no idea. But, you know, it's running late. I have a meeting at 930, so we're probably not going to be able to get over to the trade center. We'll go this afternoon. And then everyone in my office, which was adjoining to my apartment, walked in and said, this was what was happening. And at the time, my daughter was about five months old. And, you know, you can't keep something on someone's head. So it was a, uh, it was not a great day. It was not a great day, but it could have been, you know, like I could have been looking at it retrospectively from another way because I did have friends that were on the 110th floor having their board meeting that morning and none of them made it out. So it was, it's one of those days that I don't think anybody in New York will forget if you were downtown, because it was the most crisp, clear blue sky I had ever seen in my life. And that's what everyone recalls. It was a beautiful blue sky day. And you don't usually see a really, really blue, blue sky in New York. It always has a gray tone. It was crisp, but blue. Hmm. But. Yeah. And, and I think in, in going over that idea of slowing down, the, the idea of something like that, it immediately makes the world slow down. And it's always fascinating to realize that just from that shared grief and trauma and having to slow down, what happened as a result within the human chain reaction to such a tragic day. And so then I ask, what, what, what can we do as a culture to slow down without a tragedy and a trauma like, you know, that will force you to slow down? Or as you spoke about with the crash of a car or the crash of a plane, you know, if, if slowing down is a really good idea and a great message universally, how do we do that at a time where we are running like gerbils on uh, you know, a, just a, there's a chain reaction of chaos that is unavoidable. So then what is your thought about slowing down culturally, well, universally? Well, Lar, you made a really good point about what your teacher said. And when you use the expression, cool mind, warm heart, that's, first of all, to meditate to me is cool. It really is a cool thing to do. And that's not necessarily how the word cool is used in that expression, but it's one of those words that has many meanings, and I love words like that. I love words that uh, you could think of it as, oh, cool, like Elvis is cool, or whoever, Mick Jagger is cool, or cool as in chilled, uh, not so hot, ready to react, ready to boil. And so to think in life, you want to have that cool mind at all times. And meditation, when you do meditate, 
it will help you keep the beat when you need it most. To take that beat, to breathe and think, do I really want, you know, what is the impact going to be if I lose it right now? And in that split second, you have that thought occur where you say, do I really want to be angry? Is it worth it? Is it worth hurting someone, apologizing later? You think. You just think differently. Nine times out of ten, even if you're at seven times out of ten, it's better than zero times out of ten. And the more you do it, the more you get adjusted to the idea of taking the beat, as I say. Tell us your meditation practice. What does your daily practice look like? Well, it, I, I meditate at a, two kind of odd times and then every so often in between. When I wake up every morning, I meditate. And most people say, well, why did you even wake up? Why did you get up if you're just going to kind of meditate? And there's a difference between being awake and meditating. I wake up. I like to get up before anyone else in my house is up, so it's usually around 5.30 in the morning. And I sit in a rocking chair. I tell people the most important thing is you're comfortable. Some people like to sit. They sit in the lotus position or they lay down. I like to sit in a rocking chair. And I find I just start rocking in that chair with my eyes closed. And I allow whatever thought comes into my mind to either, one, I just say, I'm relaxing now, if it's a stressful thought. But if it's a fun or happy thought, I let myself build on it. (laughs) So some people say, oh, well, when you're meditating, you have to clear all thoughts. There are times when I do that. I do that at night when I'm going to sleep. In the morning, I like to start the day with, what do I want to think about today? What do I want to work on? And in the morning when I stop meditating, which is about, I usually do it for about 10 to 20 minutes, and I often find all of a sudden the chair's not rocking. I'm just in some zone someplace else, which is a very comfortable feeling. Then I start to write about 6 in the morning. That's when I start to write my blog. The second time I meditate is at night before going to bed. When I get in bed, I start with just imagining my whole body releasing any stress. And I do more of a guided meditation with myself, working from the top of my head down to my neck, into my shoulders, into my chest. And just imagine everything draining out through the tips of my toes. Mm -hmm. And often it's, it's just, the only way I can describe it is a feeling of lifting off that I'm now very in a very peaceful state and ready to sleep, ready to let things go. And at night when things pop into your mind, it's a really great time to say, you know what, I'm relaxing now. And the more you get yourself used to the idea that you're entitled to relax, the better you feel. Mm, That's wonderful. So do you go um, through your eight hours, because I know you believe in that eight hours as I do, and I, I recently heard someone say, even if you're not totally sleeping the eight hours, stay in bed the eight hours. Um, don't turn anything on that's an electronic gadget. 
so when you're in your eight hour pattern, do you, when you get up, do you use that same sort of visualization when you are aware that monkey mind might set in and you don't want to go there? You want to say, I'm relaxing now. Would it also be a useful time to try that head to fingertip visualization just to fall back into that special place of letting go? A very good one, Laura, to do when you can't go to sleep is just really focus on, I'm relaxing now. It does pay to keep a pad next to your bed if you really need to write something down. I never recommend someone turns on an electronic device. I don't think they should be in a room. The dingers have to be shut off. You need to separate unless you're using it as an alarm, but still don't even look at it. Just don't bring that light into your bedroom. Instead, focus on, I'm relaxing now. This is sleep time. I can handle anything in the morning. Yeah. In fact, I want to add on to that because you got to go get that little alarm clock. Everyone listening, go buy that mm-hmm. alarm clock at Value Village, but get it. I have one. Yeah, you can't have the phone in the bedroom, period. At the stu- I mean, obviously, if you're a mom and you've got a teenage child, as you mentioned, you might need to have the phone. But in the event that you don't, you don't want to have a phone in a bedroom. You want to take it out of the room. You want to get it in a different room and put that little digital alarm clock next to you without a lot of light. Let it be your old-fashioned way of camping out inside of your home with your bedroom and make it just the Zen center the womb of your relaxation and refueling. So that's really good. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's so helpful when you do get up in that 3 a.m. They call it the hour of the wolf. It's also the hour of the liver, that you cleanse your liver from 3 to 4 in the morning. And often, I hear women say often to me, at least, that it's when they go back into that bed after that 3 a.m. wake up, it's so hard to go back to sleep and the anxiety really sets in. So these exercises are very useful. The tools work, and that's what you want to apply and try if you're one of the women that is struggling to sleep at three or three to four or a man. Try this. It, it helps. It works. Diane, you've been married 20 years. Tell us why. What it, what, what's the secret? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, it's not my first marriage, and I think the secret is I really look at myself first. Mm. And I think I know enough of what a bad day is like, what it's like to be have just feel like things are overwhelming, that I'm more likely to look at myself or just be less sensitive when someone else is having a bad day and say, you know what? We all have bad days. Everybody has them. It doesn't mean things are falling apart. I think it's also another thing I try to tell everybody, and I don't really give personal relationship advice ever. Um, I think it's very personal, but emotions are like waves. They come in and they go out. And if you can just accept that, you know what, right now you might feel really overwhelmed with anger or fury, you know what, it's going to go out. It's going to go away. And... Some tide, if you really try to look for it, of love will come in. And a really great story I got one time from a good friend of ours who's a linesman in the NHL. And he had known my husband for many years. In fact, my husband was his coach 
before he ended up off recruited by the NHL. Mm-hmm. And one of his coaches said to him at one point, listen, I really like your wife, and before I ever hear you complain about her again, I want you to make a list of 50 things, and you make sure you tell her the 50 things you like about her. And if you get through that 50 in a day, then you go ahead and tell her what she needs to work on. But just remember, (laughs) tomorrow the list starts at number one again. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. (laughs) And it's a good way to live. Can you imagine if everyone took that approach? Oh, I love that. I really think there's value in that because that says, look at the positive side that people forget about when they're in a daily routine with a partner. It's often forgotten that thing Mm -hmm. that is very special or that you would miss if that person were gone. And it's good to remember what those 10 or 50 things are as (laughs) a way to balance some of the criticism, which is so destructive. Um, I love the gratitude jar idea. I can't remember. I think this was an Elizabeth Gilbert thing years ago. Um, And if it isn't, my apologies to whomever did come up with this. But it's where you have a, you know, beautiful sort of artistic mason jar. And at the end of every day, you write one little thing that went well that day. And it can be a piece of chocolate. It does not have to be profound. But you put it in the jar and you go to bed and, you, you know, do it again the next day. And you do it again the next day. And then when you're having just the worst day, the... The, the blues are really taking over, you reach in and you grab one of your entries and you read it. And it automatically picks up the spirit. It's just like a boost that's intensely effective. So that's I love a the wonderful idea. idea. It's a cool wonderful one. Wonderful idea. A lot of families do it. I never heard that before. Yeah. And, and when you do it as a family, it's really a great way to keep everybody realizing that there's a dark side and a bright side. And it depends on where you're going to gauge that glass half full or empty. But if you pick it out of the jar, it sort of shifts the consciousness to the positive side. So it's a good one. It's a fun one. It's like remembering those 50 things you love about your partner. <laughs> you know, it, it really is a good one. And the other is just by doing that, it brings you back to action. And action in relationships, action in life is so important. And it's that idle mind sitting around doing nothing. You start to commiserate, blah, blah, blah. You know what? Act. You know, just keep doing things in a positive way and things tend to move toward in a positive direction. Yeah. And I love what the Dalai Lama says about how bad you feel someone's worse, so go do something for someone, and you'll immediately feel better. Mm-hmm. Service, service to other. I want to know, what, what are you excited about nutritionally right now with the beautiful summer bounty, and you're in New York. Do you head out to Long Island or go to one of the pretty nature spots where all those farmer's markets are in the summer? I love farmer's markets. I was just out in Montauk. I, I'm a brilliant at peaches right now. Mm, <laughs> peaches are spectacular. And I always think of peaches as soft and juicy, but I had a very firm peach the other day that was so very firm, but so sweet. So it, and I thought it wasn't going to be ripe. So I really try to eat whatever is seasonal at any given point. I'm, I am largely a vegetarian 
um, who eats cheese, and I do have half and half in my coffee, which I enjoy. But overall, my diet pretty much revolves around fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, and grains. And right now, when summer comes, oh my gosh, there's just a plethora of great stuff to grab. Yeah, I find it so exciting to see the markets in different parts of the world as to what's in season at that time with that place and location. So Mm -hmm. I'm in Portland, Oregon, and the bounty of summer here is ridiculously special. It's just, it's a kaleidoscope of beauty and options and tastes and colors and juicy nectar everywhere. It's so fun. Um, And we're about, you know, the solstice is tomorrow. And so this won't air till the day after the solstice. But I'd love to know, being that it will air the day after, if you have any sort of routine or ritual that you believe in with something like the summer solstice or the winter solstice, do you have rituals that you honor with the moon or the sun or the stars? I am a big believer in such things as the Zodiac. And I've always been fascinated with stars, star patterns, ever since being a little kid. And I think we raised our children the same way, to look up, to observe those stars, to look for the patterns, see what you can notice season after season or year over year, there's something very grounding to be able to look into the stars. It gives you a lot of perspective that there's a big world out there, and no matter what you're going through, might not be so important in the entire big scheme of the universe. I think it's really great for perspective for everyone to spend a lot of time looking up at stars. Watch. This morning I was up very early. I couldn't believe it. I heard the sunrise was going to be at 5.11 in the morning. I thought, oh, my gosh, that can't be possible because I am a 5.30 riser, but it was worth it to get up and watch that sunrise. I think mm. we, watching sunrises and sunsets, the, the star that guides so much of our lives is a fantastic thing to do. Yeah, especially now with this very bright, vibrant, pregnant time of the year. Tell everybody, how do people find you? Go through the ways that you do. You mentioned early in the show that you love communicating with your audience and you receive a lot of information from them. So tell everybody how to be part of your world. Yes, thank you for that opportunity. Well, on Instagram and Pinterest, as well as Facebook, I'm under Silver Disobedience. So it would be at Silver Disobedience, and that's S-I-L-V-E-R, like the color, and Disobedience, all one word. The website where all the blogs I write are also housed is at silverdisobedience.rocks, because we're rocking in our older (laughs) years. We're not Mm -hmm. just home. (laughs) We're rocking it. So it's silverdisobedience.rocks. But between Facebook and Instagram, there is a really active conversation every day. It's funny. It started off more on Facebook, and now it seems to have shifted over to Instagram, but where thousands of people leave comments and engage on a daily basis. And there are comments within comments, which are fascinating. 
So would you say as a businesswoman and an entrepreneur that you got a lot out of sponsoring your ad through Instagram? I, I think it helped build a fantastic audience. Um, and I, and the most interesting thing though has been the sharing of the people who have gotten involved with on a, on a daily basis. There'll be six, there'll be six or seven comments where people are tagging six to 10 different people saying, you've got to check this out. This is how I feel, but I'm reading it. I'm talking about it. We're talking about how everyone feels the same. Yeah, yeah. I think Instagram is the most creative business tool there is. Um, and that's how I found you. So I'm so glad for that. And I want to know just before we close, what's on your reading list this summer? What are you reading? Oh, my gosh. At any given point, I'm reading anywhere between 10 and 15 books at a time. I'm one of those ones that has them all over the place. And then on top of that, I read stuff on the web, on websites. I'm, oh boy, I just got uh, the Frederick Douglass story, which someone had recommended, and I'm reading a, um, three different books by Sherry Huber, who I really enjoy reading. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love uh, her work. Yeah, she fascinates me. Yeah. And... I, oh my gosh, I, I've got a stack. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because I, I'm a yard sale person as well as a book sale, sale, and there's not a week that goes by that I don't have things coming in from Amazon or if I'm at a yard sale or flea market, I start in the book section and walk out yeah. with 20 different books. I know, I know, because I can tell by what you share on your website that you love to study, and I just can't get enough of it. I am like the same way and I'm thankful as could be to have Powell's books important which if you come out here you would love Powell's because it's mm-hmm. its own it's its own village it's a place that you would want to come so I hope you'll think about that and thank you for your time today and I'm sorry you had to go through a crash to experience this day in full, but this has been a wonderful (laughs) reprieve with you. And I think you're such a cool woman with not only a cool mind, but a warm heart. So thank you, Diane. Well, thank you, Laura. I'm honored to have spent the time with you. I really appreciate it. It was wonderful. Have a beautiful summer. You too. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Feel Good Naked Radio with Laura Redmond. Please join us again for new shows every month on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until our next show, be you and feel great in your own skin.